Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Not chanting anything. I heard it in a NASCAR race. I'm Chris Moore. <laughs> this is Election Shock Therapy. Oh, yeah, you know where we're going. I'm, uh, I'm happy, happily here at Bethel University. There's a little bit of snow on the ground. It feels like November. You can almost smell the turkey. Uh, gentlemen, as as good old-fashioned Midwesterners, well, some by <laughs> transplant, some by, some by birth, what thanksgiving is the most midwestern kind of food right it's oh, yeah. um yes it's 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 it has all the hallmarks of being high in carbs um and being <laughs> you know kind of traditional maybe not high end on the spice or flavor content what what thanksgiving food do you most look forward to oh, can i interject because this this is great chris because i was just having a conversation with with courtney about this yesterday uh-huh. and we were we we're looking at Thanksgiving plans, and I think we we're being invited over to the Moore house. Coming to my house, so careful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were also <laughs> we're having some uh, Friendsgiving th- this upcoming weekend, and so we were talking about what we're going to bring and whatever. And I was just commenting on like, why is it that sort of the most American of all holidays, right? Thanksgiving is yep. just also has the most typical sort of boring American food, right? Yeah. I mean. Mm-hmm. Turkey and stuffing and green beans and casseroles and yep. white bread and whatever. It's just like it's um it's fine, right? But it's like it's nothing terribly interesting, right? But this is what we do and it's because it's tradition, right? We can't sort of deviate from it. So uh, um, Crumb is shaming you. Crumb would yeah, just offer defense of Thanksgiving food. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Thanksgiving food is the best. <laughs> Truly, yeah, but you know, all you Ohio people like don't know, know much about it. Uh, so and once again, we devolve into regionalism. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm I'm here for all the regionalism, Chris. So wow. please go ahead, um, Professor Bramson. You did not grow up, and therefore you were not inculcated into. Yes, but no, no, you didn't. You've never grown up, and you also did not do any of your growing up inside the United States. So, would you like to tell us about your perspective on Thanksgiving foods? You know, my, my mom was very um, deliberate about, like, we, we still did Thanksgiving. Even though we were in Senegal and West Africa, we did Thanksgiving. We tried to get turkey. What, what was, was the import on turkey, man? What's that? What was, um, so go ahead. I have a, I have a turkey oh, story. One, one year, we actually raised our own turkeys because uh, my father was helping this guy out, um, and he needed some money, and, and he had some turkeys. So dad's like, well, I'll buy your turkeys off you, and if you come butcher them for me, you know, like, that'll be part of the deal uh, of the purchase price. And so we bought them, and it turns out like you can you can definitely tell the difference between turkeys that have had the hormones. Um, the, the there's a lot more breast meat on our turkeys here. Um, yeah. Turkeys there have like, these really like kind of concave, um, you know, breast areas. So they were like very little white meat, all dark meat. It was almost more like duck, right? Like um, so we did that. But yeah, we, it was always it was hard to find turkey. Like some years it worked, some years you kind of had to you know go with the backup, the chicken you know option. So. Um, but we still did it. We still did pretty traditional food. So in that sense, I grew up with a, a Thanksgiving tradition. I have a friend who spent um, nearly a decade in Taiwan uh, teaching English. And 
he and some expats decided around Thanksgiving time that they were really missing traditional American Thanksgiving. And they decided to throw a Friendsgiving and they decided to order a turkey. And they went to a local meat market that specialized in poultry. And the very accommodating uh, manager of this meat market was like, absolutely, I can definitely get you a turkey. Not a problem. And for some reason, price was not discussed. And so he got them a turkey from the United States to Taiwan. This is back in the 90s. And in 90s prices, it was like six, seven hundred dollars. Um, and no turkey is worth this. Just. No turkey is worth that. Yeah, um, they're barely worth the 79 cents a pound you pay. Yeah. Pay. So uh, oh. be careful what you wish for because you'll get it. <laughs> wow. Oh, All right. So we're not here just to talk about uh, Thanksgiving food, although none of you mentioned uh, stuffing, which is I did. The, the, you mentioned stuffing. The, no, I, I stuffing said the is word. the best. It is. I, I do like stuffing. If, if you've got like a good, part. yeah, sorry. Yeah, if you've got like a good like sausage fruit stuffing, like, yeah, man, that will like knock your socks off with flavor. It's like great. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm with you on this, Mitch. We can agree. <laughs> this is our common ground. So. That's not what I would define as stuffing, but carry on. <laughs> the, the the trick is the trick is to use the turkey to enhance the flavor of other foods. The turkey is not the centerpiece. The turkey is the side dish. <laughs> Yeah. I thought you needed other flavors to enhance the turkey. That's also um, true. Okay. <laughs> it, it goes both ways. Two way street. Okay, so here's what I'm, we want to hit, hit really quick here because there is a lot happening in Washington, D.C., and there's a lot happening in the United States. We have uh, ongoing prosecutions of the January 6th insurrectionists uh, who invaded the Capitol building. And that's happening. There is the trial, very famously, of Kyle Rittenhouse, a uh, counter-protester who uh, killed two people and shot a third and is on trial for those, uh, um, for those attacks. But and, and, and also, just minutes ago, prior to our recording, uh, President Biden signed the infrastructure bill. The secondary social spending bill has been pushed off until late November, I believe, and who knows, we're still deep in negotiations on that. But we're also election shock therapy, and so we talked a little bit about the most important 2021 elections last time, and out of all these things that are happening, we're also paying attention to the most horse racy of horse races, which is how popular is the president? Throughout his four years in office, Joe Biden, I'm sorry, excuse me, Donald Trump re remained relatively unpopular, at least, which is to say he was underwater. So he had um, a um, more people disapproved of his of his presidency than approved of it. And when Joe Biden began his presidency, he had a relatively different script. So. Yep. Early on, um, January 26th, for example, shortly after his inauguration, 54% of people approved of Biden's uh, um, uh, 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 job as president, only 37% disapproved. And by the way, I'm drawing this from 538's polling average. This isn't just one poll. This is a bunch of polls that they've sort of aggregated and taken the average of. Right. But over time, since the beginning of his presidency in, in 21, his numbers have eroded over the course of this year. And essentially, his disapproval ratings have crept up, his approval ratings have crept down until, dun, 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 somewhere around late August when his numbers essentially matched. And since then, they've diverged in the opposite direction. And so as of November 15th, 
Uh, 51.5% of people disapprove of Joe Biden's presidential performance. Only 42.8% approve. And much of that shift has not come from Republicans who have long disapproved of everything Joe Biden has done, but rather have come from Democrats and independents. Uh, in contrast to Donald Trump, who, had, who maintained an over 90% approval rating amongst Republicans, even at his most unpopular points, Joe Biden's current approval amongst Democrats is only about 80%. Yeah. Guys, what do we make of this? Is there political science scholarship to help us interpret the relative unpopularity of our two most recent presidents? Well, this is well, surprising than Trump's, right? I think we should note, and then I'm sure Matt can offer more on the scholarly end, but it's more surprising because Biden starts higher, right? Um, I mean, Trump never was that high, as you know, rightly noted, and he didn't win that many votes. I mean, like he was at 46% of the popular vote when he won the presidency in 2016. So in that sense, like his low approval ratings matched his relatively low vote totals pretty closely. Um, they were they dipped a little bit below that, but not a lot, right? Whereas Biden was at you know, right, right around 50% of the vote in the, the general election. Um, so now we have a significant number of people, about one in 12 Americans who voted for Joe Biden but now do not approve his performance. And that's, again, we're only, what, 10 months into his, his presidency, not even 10 full months, right, into his presidency. Um, that's a pretty quick, quick drop-off um, for him. And it's worth noting, I mean, like, this is then matched pretty closely by his vice president. So they seem to be, those two polling averages seem pretty closely, closely linked. Does that mean, Andy, that this is less about Joe Biden, the person, and more about... Joe Biden, the presidency, Joe Biden, the policies, or is it simply that Kamala Harris, regardless of how big of a personality she is, is really being painted with the Joe Biden brush? I think it is less about Biden as a person and more about sort of perceptions of his policies, perceptions of his efficacy. Um, I mean, it is striking that, you know, the, the Afghanistan thing was one of the things that hurt him. It's not the only one, but, um, you know, it's right around there that he really starts to go down, right? Like the, with the perceptions of like, that's going badly. He's not leading effectively. Um, and then uh, it's right around the same time we have the gridlock in Congress or the, the bills. So, um, yeah, I think it is a lot about his efficacy. Yeah, I think it's it's helpful. I think kind of as we spoke of last time, we have to think of sort of macro sort of patterns, right, in mm -hmm. that are cyclical in American politics. Presidents typically, um, with the exception of, of Donald Trump, start with higher approval ratings than disapproval ratings. And then usually within the first few months, those start to slide. Um, and oftentimes they tend to flip where disapproval ratings tend to be higher than approval ratings. Um, and this is a feature of the fact that we lived in, live in very sort of partisan and polarized times. Um, some you know people from the opposite party at the beginning of a presidency are willing to sort of give the incumbent the benefit of the doubt um but as their policies roll out as they deal with crises or deal with them ineffectively um people sort of revert to um to their sort of traditional positions um on you know these sort of partisan issues and even some partisans themselves um you know on the president's side come to critique um how the president has implemented their preferred policies, right? Um, and so, so you know, so what we're seeing with Biden is really not a whole lot different than what you've seen with other presidents, right? But it is important to note, with the exception of Donald Trump, um, President Biden has the lowest approval ratings of any sort of modern president at this point in, 
you know, in the first year of, of, a, of a new president, right? So, so I think the ongoing problems with COVID, um, some of the sort of economic problems that continue, um, just the, the way that Biden handled um, Congress, right? Um, the delays in getting his legislation pushed forward, which are partly his fault. Um, the Afghanistan, um, just utter disaster. Um, and just sort of general views of sort of competency, right? Um, you know, are all having an impact here as, as well as, as um, just, you know, what other people in, in the Democratic Party are doing that are, that, that, that is unpopular with, with parts of the American electorate. Yeah. I'll just add one thing to that, too. I mean, like last week, the Pew Forum came out with some data about, um, you know, how how the parties are seeing each other, how they're seeing their own leaders. Right. And so forth. Um, And I was kind of going over that. But it was it was interesting to note. Right. That among Republicans, there was a there was a lot of people who said, like, you should not if you're gonna be a Republican. You should not criticize Donald Trump as our leader. Right. Um, You cannot criticize him. Right. That to do that is sort of like you know, just it's disloyal to the party and those people should not be allowed basically to do this. And you do not have correspondingly high numbers in that regard in the Democratic Party, right? In particular among, on the wings of the party, right? Like sort of really hardcore right-wing Republicans were especially loyal to Trump, right? And when you get to the hardcore left wing of the Democratic Party, they're not especially loyal to Biden, right? I mean, like they hope they can get some things through him that they want, but they don't actually see him as like deeply sympathetic to to them in the way that um, the right wing of the party, the Republican Party sees Trump, right? So I think when you think about that, like softening of his numbers among Democrats, I mean, it seems like those numbers connect pretty well, right? Like that, there, there is not such a deep loyalty. There's not such a deep connection. Um, and I think that makes them more willing to say, yeah, we voted for him, but we don't, we don't love what he's doing. Yeah. And, that, and that's a, oh, I was going to say, okay, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say two things. And, and part of that is oh, there's two reasons for it. I think, first of all, it has to do with, with Biden versus Trump's relative sort of position within the Democrat versus Republican coalition, right? Um, and the second part is, you know, Trump has always, you know, since since he, you know, gained the candidacy and the Republican nomination, right, had this sort of cult of personality, this following, right, um, which Biden has never had, right? Um, there's just, um, there is a difference in sort of their, <laughs> in sort of the, the, the following that they inspire, right? Which, which means that I think, People, yeah, are, are going to be less loyal and sticky um, to to Biden. So. Like no one's talking about Bidenism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to that point, I was struck by something that happened this week with the House voting in favor of the infrastructure bill. The some a couple conservative Democrats jumped the jumped ship with the Democratic Party, and about I think it was twelve Republicans joined their Democrats in voting for the infrastructure bill. Now, infrastructure is not usually seen as one of those deeply partisan issues. In fact, it's kind of the thing that's perfect for sausage making because you can kind of allocate projects and things to people's districts that would allow them to vote for things that they might not otherwise vote for. Here's what struck me, though. There was a move by House Republicans to censure the 12 uh, Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill. And the purpose of the censure would not only be to sort of essentially say they were disloyal to their party, but to remove them from their um, seniority-based uh, committee seats. That's yep. wild, right? That's a level of, of, of inter-party um, loyalty check that I don't think I've seen in my time of observing politics. Is this unprecedented? 
Uh, yes. Um, usually, I mean, that's the crazy thing. Like, this was a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Infrastructure. Everybody likes infrastructure. And you know what? Trump even tried infrastructure. And the Republicans were talking about passing an infrastructure. If Trump had proposed this bill, all of those Republicans would have been on board. Yep. Every single one of them. Um, so, or almost every single one of them. So, so it's it's mind blowing. So like simultaneous to you know some Republicans saying these these people should be stripped of their committee assignments for going along with an infrastructure bill, which is you know pretty pretty bland you know policy, right? Yeah. At the same time, you have various other um, crackpot Republican members of Congress, right, saying crazy things or under investigation for you know criminal under criminal allegations, right? These people aren't being stripped of their committee assignments. We're talking about stripping the committee assignments of regular rank and file members who voted for a bipartisan infrastructure package. That is completely bananas to me, right? And just kind of shows sort of the sickness, um, the sickness of our of our party system. Okay, so let's let me um, let me assume for a second that these that this is not some kind of mass affectation or sort of mass psychosis but there's actually good political reasons for doing this do republicans perceive that lockstep loyalty pays benefits with their voters in this present season as opposed to any amount of ideological diversity or alternatively is the democratic party so far to the left now that any concessions are seen as partisan weakness I mean, I think it's long been the case, especially amongst the, you know, especially especially on the right, um, that any kind of concessions are usually perceived as as weakness. Um, you know, I think to some degree you can sort of chalk that up to, you know, even early talk radio, you know, with, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh pushing ideas of, you know, rhinos and things like that and sort of like trying to push out any kind of, um, you know, attempt to find moderation and, um, you know, compromise and, you know, essentially seeking out the middle. Um, although those efforts, I think, were resisted for a long time, um, you know, at least at least for a while, but now seem to be, you know, sort of central. I mean, that seems to have seems to have sort of taken over, although part of that also comes back to um, and, you know, there is some some um, political science literature to back this up, which is basically the idea that um, there's there there's there's a big difference in terms of your willingness to compromise and come over when you are when you perceive yourself to potentially win in the next election versus when you perceive that you are destined to be a minority for at least another election or two if you think you have the chance to win in the next election your entire objective and rationale becomes obstruct at any cost because you mm. do not want the other party to pass things on their watch and you're hoping to pass things on your watch and so, you know, essentially, if you perceive that you might be able to win, which, of course, as we've already discussed and, you know, is widely known, you know, there's a strong possibility that the Republican Party will, will um, you know, take right. over at least at least uh, the House, possibly the Senate next uh, next election. That basically removes their rational incentive to try to do anything, yeah. um, you know, to basically basically, you know, any, any kind of legislation is, is essentially a defeat in that sense. Um, and I think that's, you know. That 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 gets at part of why any kind of governing has been difficult, really, for the last decade or more. I mean, as both parties perceive themselves correctly as always sort of on the brink of taking back, uh, you know, control yep. of Congress or control of the presidency, and you know, we have seen them exchanging control on that that 
you know, that, that, that encourages this sort of mindset of, of not, you know, essentially not governing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I was going to say, I mean, to make this point, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, if you know that you are probably going to come back into power, especially because, you know, every midterm, you know, the president's party loses seats, right? And the president's party in the House has a super, and the Senate have super thin margins, right? Okay, fine. It makes sense strategically, perhaps, for Republicans in the House to not go along. That makes sense politically. Sure, I grant that. And that sort of thing has been going on for a while. But the fact, but to then sort of add to that, like, okay, if you happen to break ranks and vote with the Democrats on that, not only are we going to sort of yell at you, we're actually going to suggest that you you should be stripped of your committee assignments, right? I mean, that's a whole, because you didn't sort of, because you're not passing basically the loyalty test, right? Um, and the loyalty to our cause and to our person, right? Of, of Trump or um, to sort of re- regaining a Republican majority, right? This sort of loyalty test, I think, is, is, is just has really taken over beyond any sort of like political strategery. Um, and that's what I find to be um, particularly troubling. Right, right. And I think that's that's right. And like it's, and it's where the loyalty test is. I mean, it's one thing if you say like, there's a really important moral issue we can't compromise on right. on this, right? But again, this is an infrastructure bill, right? This is a, like, it's the nuts and bolts of government, right? It is building roads and bridges and things like that, right? I mean, like, that has not ever been kind of like the, kind of where, this is the hill we're going to die on. This is where we're throwing down the gauntlet or whatever analogy you want to use, right? Like, it's not that kind of issue, right? It's a pragmatic of, do I think this is going to do a good job for the people of America and it could be a good expenditure of our money, right? A good investment of our money, right? Um, it's a crazy place to to stake that out and say, you must be with us on this or else, right? Um, and that's where we're at. Because, I mean, again, I go back to that Pew Forum data, right? They're saying, you know, you're, you're seeing increasing percentages of both parties saying things like, you know, it is fine to label the other party, not just as their opponents, but as evil, right? Um, and substantial, you know, not, not quite a majority of either party yet, but, but you know, substantial minorities, a third to, you know, about two fifths of the parties are saying, yeah, I have no problem with you labeling Republicans en masse as evil or Democrats en masse as evil. And they're saying, substantial portions of them are saying, and we should hold no common positions, right? And it's like, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, like, we all support, you know, the troops or for whatever, right? I mean, like, no one wants to oppose that. But but mm-hmm. people will say that, right? And that's the way they're thinking about how we engage politically. So, um, you know, I guess that's my, my the rant 2.0, right, to follow up on Matt's, right? But I think, um, you know, that's that's really concerning, right? Because now it's just like, it's not just that there's a loyalty test out there somewhere. It's like every vote is a loyalty test. That's troubling. Well, speaking of loyalty tests, let's wrap on this, guys. I go ahead. I did not want to talk about this, <laughs> but the people are asking. Um, we've sort of, sort of. Can we can we talk a little bit about Brandon? <sighs> yeah. Okay, so you should maybe explain it. I'll I'll explain it and then I'll clear out for rant 3.0. So, (laughs) some weeks, some weeks ago, at uh, the NASCAR event, the the uh, a driver was being interviewed. A winning driver was being interviewed. I believe his name was, in fact, Brandon. Uh, And while he was being interviewed post race, 
the crowd at this NASCAR event could be heard chanting, and you, uh, parents, you do not need to cover your kids' ears. I'll keep this PG. They, they, um, a, um, a four-letter expletive that begins with F. They were being, uh, they were, the crowd was chanting F Joe Biden. And the announcer trying to cover for this audio, obvious audio problem said nervously, I think they're saying, let's go, Brandon, which they obviously were not. Now, that makes for a tiny bit of funny television. But since then, let's go, Brandon, which is clearly just a euphemism for F. Joe Biden, has taken off in a whole bunch of circles and not merely just conservative circles or Republican circles, but um, at uh, several large I would call them pseudo evangelical churches. I don't know what Mitch <laughs> might think about that appellation, but um, have uh, there were, there have been churches where people have been chanting, let's go Brandon. And I can't begin to describe to you how nauseated that makes me. Yeah. Um, but I want to give you all a chance to talk about purity tests and how we use vulgarity and how we use those uh, kinds of language, uh, l- the symbolism of that kind of language uh, to signal loyalty. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things, I mean, we've just been, you know, as, as you already sort of set up with the, with the lead in, you know, you have, if, if we think our goal as Americans is to try to find some kind of common ground with each other on which we can, um, you know, be governed and have common values and advance um, you know, what we would think of as the common good, <laughs> um, which obviously is, is, was one of the core goals, even, uh, you know, uh, of the founding. I mean, this is essentially what Madison and some, a lot of the other authors of the constitution has, uh, said was, you know, the fundamental goal was to do everything you could to try to find, um, you know, common, common ground compromise, um, type of, uh, legislation, even though, of course, I mean, you know, not everybody's going to be happy. Um, in fact, oftentimes, if you find common ground and the common good, no one will be happy. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> will be unhappy in some way. Um, but nonetheless, the entire premise on which you can do all that is mutual respect and an ability to actually have a reasonable conversation with one another. Yeah. And the moment you lose that is the moment you lose the ability essentially to have that sort of um, a small R Republican um, ideal of being yep. able to to come together and search for for the common good, yep. um, and so I think that's you know the, what's what we're in danger of of losing, and what especially um, you know in sort of these particular particular moments, you know, we're in danger of losing the ability to even um, exercise those you know those 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 core virtues, um, mm-hmm. and I think the other side to this too, um, and I think this is this is sort of the the other the other side of this, which is uh, the concern, which is which is basically that you know if this becomes essentially the purity the type of purity test for the Republican Party, then it becomes concerning as to what kind of d- diversity is allowed within that party. Traditionally, our mm-hmm. parties have been big tents; they've allowed for a wide variety of people to to be involved in them. I mean, you think about. Um, you know, I mean, it's easy to see in the Democratic Party even today. I mean, you've got a wide range of people, everything from relatively conservative folks um, all the way over to, you know, the very progressive folks like Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, you have relatively folks who are often relatively conservative, particularly, in, you know, in African-American churches and things like that, who yeah. are yeah. staunchly Democrat, but nonetheless have, you know, very different views than oftentimes um 
you know, the much more much more progressive folks um, on a number of yeah. fronts. And in the Republican Party used to also have a reasonable amount of diversity, um, you know, and, and perhaps still do, although, <laughs> you know, this is the question, right, as to whether that diversity can survive. I mean, in the Republican Party, you often had a great deal of diversity between religious conservatives, uh, and then you also had sort of like the more, uh, you know, business country club, uh, you know, Rockefeller perhaps type <laughs> type folks. Um, then of course you also had kind of the more libertarian folks as well that also uh, you know kind of got lumped in with uh, with mm -hmm. the Republican Party. And right. you know it just becomes an open question as to whether you can still have sort of the inner party debate and movement if if you know if everyone sort of takes this very sort of like enmity view of of the other party and um, you know and uses that as sort of the core core test of, of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, I'll footstomp yeah. what Mitch just said. I'm, I find it distasteful that anybody who purports to follow Christ would find it within themselves to chant in a house of worship, let's go, Brandon, because of what it obviously means. I would feel the same way if that phrase applied to Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. Nevertheless, I am actually less concerned about the utterance of the phrase than I am about the heart and mind attitude that that phrase indicates for people. And I, I think that's that, I mean, not to be pastoral, but that requires a heart check on who you are in relation to your polity and in relation to your relationship with Christ. Yeah. Yeah. If I could foot stop the stomp, the uh, foot stomp, um, you know, I think, I think it's exactly right. Um, certainly we can criticize, um, our leaders and should hold them to account. Um, as Christians, is I'll, I'll say something, you know, uh, from a sort of theological perspective, um, and then just kind of zoom out to sort of a social science perspective a little bit. Um, you know, Paul reminds us in chapter 13 um, that we are supposed to respect and pray for our authorities, right? So Romans chapter 13, you know, the authorities are God's servants who give their time to governing, right? Give to everyone what you owe them. If you pay taxes, pay taxes, right? You know, respect to those who should be respected. If honor, then honor, right? And we're supposed to pray for our leaders, not curse them, right. even in a euphemistic manner. Right. Um, Christians who curse their leaders. And, and mind you, Paul is talking about a pagan tyrant, a pagan emperor, right? Yeah. Um, in which the church, in, in a time when the church was being persecuted, not systematically, but being persecuted, if Paul can, you know, who is eventually chained because of his religious beliefs, can say, "Pray for your leaders, pray yeah. for those who persecute you, honor them, respect them, pay your taxes," then we in America, a in which we, you know, elect our president for a four-year term who is not a tyrant, right, who doesn't have that sort of power, then we can certainly do that. Right. Yeah. And I would suggest the reason why, you know, a lot of people, you know, self-proclaim sort of evangelicals or Christians or otherwise are doing this is because no longer is, you know, the belief, the teachings of Christianity, at least for these people, what they believe. Politics has become their religion. Yeah. And and this 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 politics has become their identity. Right. And and it has religious dimensions. It has beliefs. It's yeah. performative. It has rituals. It has things that people chant together. Right. Um, and, and it has its idols, right? Um, and even sort of zooming out beyond sort of the religious circles, right? Um, 
you know, increasingly we are seeing we are seeing sort of polarization and people sort of willing to chant these things because they are on sort of these big sort of abstracted national teams. Like you're there's not that many people at that NASCAR race who be willing to say to a neighbor right next to them who agreed with Joe Biden will F you. Right. Some of them might be, but a lot more people are willing to participate in this sort of performative, you know, euphemistic sort of um, expletive sort of filled, you know, rants because because they are disembodied from and detached from these sort of big national teams um, that have become part of their identities. And and this is why you see people raging on social media in a way that they don't do with with each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think. So I think that's an, and there's all sorts of interesting social science literature on, on that as well, right? Um, and so I think that's also also part of the problem. But what concerns me is that people are now taking taking these these things that they do together, you know, in NASCAR races, and now they are wearing them on T-shirts, right? Now they are doing them um, sort of out in the open um, in front of their neighbors, and that's that's what's worrying to me. I could rant on. I'm very angry and, and depressed about this, so I'm just going to be quiet now. <laughs> and one other thing that. You know, just to sort of like jump on one, I mean, there's a lot of obviously tons of great stuff there. One thing that Matt's comments also kind of sparked us, I'm just thinking, you know, one of the things we also saw this week in our sort of like crazy news cycle type stuff um, was uh, the end of the conservatorship of Britney Spears. And I'd love sort of, to see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, it may seem a little bit a field, but one of the things that I think is interesting about that is part of even the reason she was in that conservatorship is because of all the abuse she suffered um, from the public back in, uh, you know, the 1990s. I mean, it basically, you know, that was arguably, you know, to the extent that she had, you know, psychological issues, which I think is an open question as to how deep and serious those were. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, to the extent that they were there, I mean, it was almost certainly deeply caused by everything that was happening around her and sort of this, the fact that people felt like they could just do say and whatever about her. I mean, it's not that I'm here to sort of like, you know, I'm not really a fan of Britney Spears's music or anything else, but, um, but, you know, but basically what happened to her, you know, in some ways has now been pushed into politics where this is now how we treat politics and how we think about that, you know, just like people love to sort of like rant and rave about, you know, what they thought was sort of this disembodied person who actually had happened that actually did do deep harm to them. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we now feel like that's okay in politics too. And that that's seeped into, you know, everything, uh, all of our approaches. Yeah. I, I have nothing to say about the Britney Spears angle, but, um, but I just made two comments on the other. I mean, one is like, you know, I'm, I'm presenting in the library tomorrow and maybe we'll talk about this next week on this podcast about my sabbatical research, but you know, it, which is also not on Britney Spears. Right. Which is definitely not on Britney Spears. Um, she does not come up in there. But but it is on this other topic, right? And I think the three of you have done a really nice job of articulating kind of the heart of my concern that led me to this topic. And it led me to it, I mean, like over two years ago, right, when I proposed this, um, which is that I'm really concerned about where we are going, right, as not just a country, I mean, I'm concerned about that too, but as the church, right, within the United States. And what is our heart? I mean, like, you know, coming back to the, the point Chris made, right, about kind of that heart check, I mean, you can disagree with Donald Trump. You can disagree with Joe Biden. I disagree with both of them deeply on different things, right? But there's also an element to which, like, they are the president of the United States. And and by respecting their authority, by showing a respect to their authority in their position as the president of the United States, right, it is an opportunity to show our respect for the authority of God, right? Uh, it's all fine and good to say we respect God's authority over us, right? But what, what tangible thing does that demand of us that people can see, right? Showing respect for the president of the United States, um, 
is one way to demonstrate I respect God's authority because God's asked me to do that. And first, you know, in First Peter, I mean, it makes that connection very explicitly, right? Romans thirteen, which Matt already referenced, also makes that connection explicitly, right? I mean, like you, this is a way to show um, that we take seriously God's authority. It doesn't mean we can't ever question, you know, let's say Biden's position on this policy is wrong, or you know, Trump's way of talking about these people is wrong, or whatever else, right? We can do that, but there's a way to do that respectfully, um, and there's a way to do that disrespectfully. And honestly, let's go. Brandon is definitely on that that disrespectful angle. So one last comment. I mean, like at our church, every week we make the practice of praying for the president of the United States. And I think, you know, I find that very powerful. And I find it powerful to go up to watch, you know, somebody I know is a Bernie Sanders supporter, for example, go up and pray for Donald Trump in all good faith, right? And now watch people that I know voted for Donald Trump um, praying for Joe Biden, right? That's hmm. good. There's something that that tells us that there's a there's a deeper truth here that matters more than what voting calculation I made in 2016 or 2020. Um, there's something my faith calls me to, and yeah. we need to get back to that being central, not you know our feelings about Biden and Trump at a personal level. In all good faith indeed, Andy. Thank you. Well, guys, I hope that gives our... We don't often take a unified uh, four-voice position on something, <laughs> but I feel like we just kind of did there. So um, take that for what you will, my friends who are listening. Thank you for listening to us. Uh, we'll be back in your podcast feed next week with something um, a, well, a little bit different topic. And I'm looking forward to that as well. You can always get a hold of us with topic suggestions or questions that we can answer by reaching out to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. It's channel3900 at gmail.com. Lots of other great things on the channel these days, so make sure you check some of those things out as they're coming down the pipe. Thanks for listening to us. Until we're back in your podcast feed again, go Royals. (laughs) 